Good morning, church. Well, I love being a pastor. But if you think about it, being a pastor is kind of a bizarre occupation. (laughs) See, my job is not to give you uh, uh, mood-altering drugs, but to give you a mind-altering dose of reality. And reality is not necessarily what you see and feel in the moment, but reality is all that the triune God is doing in the world in and through Christ. You know, see what I do reminds me of a movie I watched as a kid called They Live. (laughs) They Live, that's the name of the movie. And it's this this ridiculous science fiction movie about this kind of down and out loser kind of guy who comes to Los Angeles looking for sort of his meaning in life and he discovers a special pair of scientific glasses capable of showing the world the way it really is. And as he walks the streets of the city, he's, he's horrified to, to find out that through these glasses, he can see that the, the planet has been invaded by mind-controlling aliens bent on world domination. At, through the lenses, he can see the, the aliens who have disguised themselves as people. Through the lenses, he, could, he can see the subliminal messages embedded in the media and television designed to subdue the population and control their minds. And so the man finds his meaning in life and he begins a rebellion. He launches a revolution designed to liberate humanity from these mind-controlling monsters that rule the planet. Now that's ridiculous. It's preposterous. Only that's not too terribly different from what I do. (laughs) You see, I am the down and outer, and my job is to help you view life through a particular pair of lenses, through profoundly theological lenses that help you see the world and reality for what it really is. And reality is not necessarily what you feel in the moment, but reality is everything that you have in Christ. You see, my job is to help you live as though the death of Christ were real. To live as though the resurrection were real, as though the rapture and the second coming were real, because guess what? They profoundly are real. You see, our resistance, our revolution called the Great Commission is not won by riots and graffiti, but by having our souls inflamed with biblical truth, with the mind-exploding doctrines found in the pages of Scripture. Because I'll have you know that despite what we see and feel, that is reality. And a dose of reality... By that I mean doctrine, doctrine that inflames our souls for a mission is exactly what Paul gives us in Titus chapter 2. In other words, what Paul gives us is reality. And reality is the way things are. And the way things are, are everything that we have in Christ. Because here's the thing about doctrine, here's the thing about theology, is that it's, it's not a game. There's nothing theoretical about it. It, It's not just there to tickle our intellectual fancies. No, it is there for authentic life change and transformation. And you remember what Paul's been doing in Titus chapter 2, right? 
In verses 1 through 10, he gives all the particular ways that each of your lives should be transformed, but the catch is you don't have any of the power within yourselves to do anything that God is calling you to be and to do. And so, and so, after talking about all the ways your lives should change in verses 1 through 10, in verses 11 through 15, he gives all the ways that life change and transformation is even possible. In other words, he doesn't just tell you that you should be godly. He gives you all the theological firepower that you need so that you can be godly. Hear the difference? And Paul gives us three doctrines, three doctrines in particular, that if you love them and believe them and submit to them, will turn your life upside down in a good way. Why? Because doctrine is reality. And if we're going to live radical, transformed lives that put Jesus Christ on display, you need to live in reality. And reality is not necessarily what you feel in the moment, but reality is everything that you have in Christ. And so here we go. A dose of reality. Here's where we're going. This morning, I want you to see from this text in Titus 2, three doctrinal realities Three doctrinal realities that could transform your lives if you would only embrace them with faith and zeal. Three doctrinal realities that could transform your lives if you would only embrace them with faith and zeal. We saw the first doctrinal reality last week, and so I'm going to review that really quickly. Here's what we saw. Number one, we saw that you must be renovated by the power of God's grace. You must be renovated by the power of God's grace. And you remember what we saw about grace, right? We saw that grace has more substance and meaning and power than most people have ever even dreamed. You see, grace is so much more than God's passive benevolence whereby he just kind of lets us off the hook. Grace does not merely mean God's leniency. No, get this, grace is the all-transforming power of Christ to do what God commands. In fact, we said it this way last week, the same grace that saves is the same grace that sanctifies The same grace that rescued us is the same grace that renovated our lives. God doesn't command you to do anything that he has not already provided the grace in Christ to obey. Because look very carefully at verses 11 and 12. Look very carefully at what Paul says and listen for the two transforming activities of grace. He says, for the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and to live soberly, righteously, and godly now in the age. Do you hear it? The two transforming activities of grace. Grace appeared and grace instructs. Grace appeared, meaning what? Meaning grace literally appeared in history in the form of and with the arrival of Jesus Christ. But not only that, grace instructs. Instructs is a verb. 
And the subject of the verb is grace, meaning grace is the thing that does the instructing. What does that mean? It implies the grace of God is the power to do what God commands. The same grace that saved is the same grace that sanctifies. I mean, can you, can you feel how insanely hope-giving this is? Everything that God demands you obey, He supplies the grace so that you can obey. Do you see? Why? Because, because that way He gets the glory. You get the grace. You get the power. He gets the glory. Everybody wins. And yet, and yet this raises the question, okay, what exactly is it that grace instructs us to do? Look at the text. Grace instructs us, here it is, to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live soberly, righteously, and godly now in the age. You see, that grace is the power to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. You know the things that you should never, ever do? Grace is the power to never, ever do those things. I mean, just think about the implications here. If grace is God's power to put ungodly behavior and lust to death, and it is, then that means that there is not a temptation invented, that there isn't also the grace in Christ to overcome. Meaning what? Meaning, if you are in Christ, you don't have to sin. That's what grace is for. Not just to forgive you after your sin, but to be the power that keeps you from sin. This is reality. This is what it means to be in Christ. And yet notice, notice, as we saw last week, grace cuts both ways. It's not only the power to never do what God forbids, it's also the power to do what God commands. Look again at verse 12. He says, the grace of God not only instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust, but also, also to live soberly, righteously, and godly now in the age. You see, grace, get this now, is God's power to live how we are supposed to live. It is His power to live how we are supposed to live. And how we are supposed to live is soberly and righteously and godly. Well, that's, that's a pretty impressive list. What do those things even mean? To live soberly it means that you have a white-knuckled grip control over your thought life. It means that you interpret life not based on how you feel in your circumstances, but through the God who is sovereign over your circumstances. To live righteously refers to what you love. It's to love what is supremely lovely. It is to value what is supremely valuable. It means you spend your life promoting the highest possible good for all mankind. And the only thing that fits that description is the glory of God himself. But then the text says we are to live godly. To live godly. What does it mean? It means that we portray and manifest and display God with our lives for the supremely valuable treasure that He is. 
That's a summary of the entirety of the Christian life, to live soberly, righteously, and godly now in the age. But here's the catch. Don't miss this. Don't miss the point of the text. You can't do anything that God commands you to do without grace. See, that's the whole point of the power of grace. The radical life that God expects is the radical life that God empowers. He doesn't command you to do anything that he has not already provided the grace in Christ to obey. And so I want you to think right now of the deepest afflictions in your soul right now in your life. The things in your life that prevent you from living soberly and righteously and godly now in the age. What are those things for you? Let's be honest. Let's be honest. We are fallen people. We struggle. And so what is it for you? Is it lust? Pride? Anger, greed, bitterness, discontentment, love of the world, love of money, fear of man, depression, whatever it is, don't you see? There is hope for you. Why? Because of the purifying power of radical grace. That was last week. Which brings us to the second doctrinal reality that could transform your life if you would only embrace it with faith and zeal. Number two, you must be riveted on the return of Christ. You must be riveted on the return of Christ. You know, because if you think about it, the activity of waiting for something is usually a fantastic waste of time. Right? It's a total, it's a, just a total waste. And, and, and the reason for that is because waiting gets in the way of things we would much rather be doing at the moment. And so waiting in line, waiting on hold, waiting at the DMV, why can they not figure this out? Waiting in some grimy room while you get your car fixed, waiting is a fantastic waste of time. It gets in the way of what you really want to do. No offense if you work for the DMV. And yet, and yet, wouldn't you know it, the activity of waiting is actually a profoundly Christian activity. (laughs) Believe it or not, waiting is actually an aid to our holiness. Waiting actually produces authentic life change and transformation. And the reason for that has everything to do with the thing we are waiting for. Here's what I mean. Look at verse 13. Paul just said in verses 11 and 12 that we're to live our lives in the power of grace. Agreed? And yet, and yet, we are to do so, verse 13, as those who are waiting, there it is, for the blessed hope and the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you see it? The activity of your lives, in fact, the unceasing activity of your lives with which you are to be continuously engaged. What did Paul say? You wait. You wait. Because apparently Christians are to be awaiting people. People who are always looking and waiting for someone or something about to happen. And as it turns out for us, it's both. 
As those who belong to Christ, we are both waiting for someone and for something, for a person and for an event, which is, look what Paul says, we are waiting, always waiting for the blessed hope and the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. There it is, the object of our anticipation. The thing for which we wait is our blessed hope and the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And again, what you have to understand here, the kind of waiting that Paul has in mind here is not some kind of Lazy, idle, laissez-faire nonchalance that just kind of naps away the afternoon. No, rather what he's talking about is an urgent, fidgety, edge-of-your-seat anticipation for one of the most singularly important events in history, namely the literal appearance of Jesus Christ. Of course, now the question becomes, okay, well, what is the blessed hope? And, and what is the appearance of our God and Savior Jesus Christ? What are these things and what do they produce in our lives? That's the question. And the answer is the blessed hope and the appearance of Christ are not two separate things. See, the grammar, the grammar indicates that our blessed hope is the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the thing for which we wait is our blessed hope, and our blessed hope is the appearing of Jesus Christ to the planet. That is the hope for which we wait. And you know, you know that when, when the Bible speaks about hope, it is not talking about the sort of cross your fingers, really hope this happens, wishful thinking kind of hope that the world talks about. No, no. Biblically, hope is not like playing the lottery or throwing a Hail Mary or rolling dice or finding the cure for cancer because in each one of those things, there are particular odds and factors and, and scenarios that might not allow those things to happen, right? Biblical hope doesn't have any of those things. There are no odds. There are no unseen factors. There is no Risk. There are no chances. There's no unseen possibilities that might not allow this thing to happen. You have to understand, the arrival and appearance of Jesus Christ is not merely a possibility, but a profound and inevitable reality. I mean, this is, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. More certain than the sun more guaranteed than gravity is the literal appearance of Jesus Christ to the planet. And yet, and yet you notice, don't you, that Christ, that Paul says, this is not just our hope. What does he say? Notice the details. He calls it our blessed hope. Paul didn't have to do that. You know, he could have just said hope and called it good and it would have been just fine, but he calls it our blessed hope. Meaning what? Meaning, get this now, meaning this is our hope that makes us happy. That's what he means. He's talking about happiness here because did you know that that word blessed literally means happy? It does. Not the cheap kind of imitation stuff that the world talks about. He's talking about the real thing here. He's talking about joy. 
an invincible and triumphant joy that satisfies the deepest longings of the human soul. And you want that, don't you? Of course you do. You all want that. And you have it with the appearance of and with the arrival of Jesus Christ to the planet. And yet, and yet, we've got to pause here and ask the question, okay, well, what is the arrival and appearance of Jesus Christ? Because if it's our hope that makes us happy, and it is, then we should probably know exactly what that is. And here's what it is. Listen carefully. I'm going to get all eschatological, theological on you here. What it is not is the second coming. He's not talking about the second coming. When, you know, when Christ returns to establish his kingdom, it's not that. That has to come later on in the plan and we will be with Christ when he does it. No, you see, we get the sense of what Paul means here is that whatever this is could happen at any moment. And so what this is, is the literal any moment arrival of Jesus Christ to extract us off the planet and then relocate us to be with him back in heaven. (laughs) In other words, he's going to show up any minute. I'm not even kidding. Remove us physically from the planet and bring us back with him to his heavenly kingdom where 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says that even if we are dead, he will resurrect us first, then he will do it. Look at your notes of 1 Thessalonians 4. Notice the immediacy with which Paul describes this event. He says, For this we say by the word of the Lord, that the Lord himself with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, shall descend, notice, shall descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ shall be raised first. Then we who are left remaining shall be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. That's what Paul's talking about. Look at the way Christ describes it, John 14. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In the house of my Father, heaven, there are many rooms. Maybe a better way to interpret that is realms. And I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I should go and prepare a place for you, again, I shall come and I shall receive you to myself in order that where I am, you also should be. That's what this is. The any moment arrival of Jesus Christ. In other words, what this is, is kind of like the witness relocation program. You know what that is? When someone witnesses a major crime and they risk their lives to testify in court. The government literally gives them a new name and a new identity and a new physical location to live the rest of their lives in safety and peace. That is exactly what this is. This is the heavenly witness relocation program. Witnesses of Jesus Christ will literally be removed from the planet and relocated to their heavenly home to be with Jesus Christ, to spend their days with infinite delight. That is the hope about which Paul speaks. And you need to make this your hope also. You might be thinking, wait, hold on, Jared. Are are you talking about the rapture? Yes, I am. And you don't have to call it that, but I hope you believe it. 
Maybe you're thinking, um, Sarah, come on. <laughs> Don't you think that sounds a bit far-fetched and mythological? I mean, wasn't that something that the, that the Left Behind series invented? I mean, I mean, that sounds a bit crazy, don't you think? And now that you mention it, I suppose that it does. I mean, it sounds about as crazy as God speaking the universe into existence. It sounds about as crazy as making the sun stand still in the sky, Joshua chapter 6. It sounds about as crazy as a floating axe head, 2 Kings 6. It sounds as crazy as parting the Red Sea or a crucified Savior raising from the dead. I guess it does sound a little outrageous, and yet I remain unmoved because that is the hope the New Testament gives us. And, And yet don't miss the details in the text. Notice the one for whom Paul says we wait. It's not just as his appearance, it's his appearance in glory. And he's not just a man, he is God. Jesus Christ is God. God and Savior. The one for who we wait, the one who is our hope, is not some exalted rabbi who did nice things for people. He is the infinite God who became man for us and for our salvation. And just so you know, make no mistake, one day he will show up with the glory of a thousand sons and he will make all things be the way they ought to be. That is the hope that makes us happy. And so my question for you this morning is this. Are you waiting for this? Is this your happy hope? Like seriously, if you belong to Christ, is his any moment, any second arrival to extract you off the planet a conscientious thought in your minds? It should be, it has to be, it must be, because think about how your life would change if you really believe this. It's not a mind game, this is real. This is reality. Sitting in traffic, walking the dog, waiting in line, whatever it is, instead of just staring at our phones, we need to discipline our minds to think, okay, right now in this moment, I am waiting for the any moment arrival of Jesus Christ because think about what happens. Everything changes. Lives once lived in lethargy and laziness become lives consumed with passion and zeal. So do dishes in light of the rapture. Walk the dog in light of the rapture. Watch movies in light of the rapture. Go on vacation in light of the rapture. Talk to unbelievers in light of the any moment arrival of Jesus Christ because Paul's point is this, what we hope for most in the future changes everything about how we live in the present. So, do what you gotta do. Write yourself a note, put it on lipstick in the mirror, get a tattoo if you must, but never ever forget the any moment arrival of Jesus Christ. Which brings us to the third doctrinal reality that could transform your life if you'd only embrace it with faith and zeal. Number three, you must be reminded of the achievements of Christ. You must be reminded of the achievements of Christ. Because for whatever reason, um, much of the church in America 
has this sort of mistaken idea that the death of Christ for sinners is just kind of something that you get past. The death of Christ is just kind of something that you, that you, you move on from. You know, I mean, it's relevant for little kids and for convicts in prison, but once you raise the hand and walk the aisle and pray the prayer, the death of Christ, although important, is yesterday's news. And after that, we move on in the Christian life. We get down to the real business. And, but you see, one of the plagues, yes, plagues of the American church is the widespread apathy. But you see, what most people don't understand is that the reason for that, that's directly related to the view that thinks that the death of Christ is only useful for altar calls and invitations. But you have to understand, if doctrine is the nuclear reactor of the Christian life, and it is, then the death of Christ is the uranium inside the reactor. Let's put it this way. The death of Christ for sinners is the thing that makes all life change and transformation even possible. And Paul does not want us to forget that. Look at verse 14. He, that is Christ, gave himself for us in order that he should redeem us from all lawlessness and he should purify for himself his own people who are zealous for good works. Do you see it? The one for whom we wait gave himself on our behalf. The same one who's going to rapture us is the same one who redeemed us. The one who will pluck us off the face of the planet is the one who purified us with his death. And what Paul does here, he gives three achievements of the death of Christ that you can never, ever forget. Three achievements of the death of Christ. And we'll review these. Number one, substitution. Number two, his redemption. And number three, his purification. His redemption, no, his substitution, his redemption, his purification. And so achievement number one of the death of Christ. Look again at verse 14. Paul says that Christ gave himself for us. I mean, that, that is profound, isn't it? I mean, there's glory in the details of the text. This is so profound. I mean, isn't it intriguing to you that out of all the ways that Paul could have described the death of Christ, that he says that he, that he used the word gave? Christ gave himself? I mean, he could have very neutrally, without any bells and whistles, simply said that Christ died for us, and it would have been awesome, but he didn't say that. Instead, he said Christ gave himself. Gave meaning gift. Gift meaning you didn't deserve it, you didn't earn it, you couldn't barter with God to get it. The gift that Christ gave was himself to be treated as sinners deserve. To take the wrath he didn't deserve for sins he didn't commit. That is the gift he gave. But I want you to notice very carefully the language that Paul uses here. Look what he says. Christ gave himself for us. Do you know what that little word for means? It literally means on behalf of. It means instead of. It means in place of. One in the place 
of another. What's that? That's a substitution. That's a substitution. You see, the death of Jesus was not merely some noble sacrifice that inspires the church to love one another. No, no, it was a transaction, a Trinitarian transaction where the Father crushed his own Son in the place of the very people who deserved to die. This was real wrath for real sins committed by real people really being executed upon the Son of God as if he were the one who committed all those sins. I mean, isn't that precisely what we said this morning in our catechism? I quote, the death of Christ for sinners was a sin-bearing, sacrificial death. And you know, people sometimes wonder, and maybe you've wondered this too, could not have God forgiven us without the death of Christ? I mean, I mean, was that absolutely necessary? I mean, God's pretty gracious and merciful and forgiving. I mean, I mean it seems reasonable that the death of Christ was not absolutely necessary, but a, but a gesture of, of, of how much he, he loves us. To which I reply, oh no, oh no, make no mistake, it was necessary. The nature of, of what sin is and the nature of God's righteousness demands that if sinners were ever going to get saved it was only a substitutionary death that could save them one in the place of another that's it that's the only way for hell deserving sinners to ever get saved a substitutionary death in their place Peter could not have been clearer 1 Peter 3.18 listen carefully for he died for sins once for all here it is the righteous in the place of the unrighteous so that he could bring you to God do you see the most important thing about the death of Christ was that it was a substitution it was a sin-bearing, wrath-absorbing, God-reconciling death. There was nothing hypothetical about the death of Christ. There was nothing theoretical about it. He didn't, he didn't die in some sort of vague, ambiguous way for hypothetical sinners somewhere. No, no. If you are in Christ, he died for you, in particular, in your place to bring you home to God. That brings us to the second achievement of the death of Christ. Look at verse 14. Paul says that Christ gave himself on our behalf. Why? For what purpose? To what end? He says to redeem us from all lawlessness. There it is. Do you see it? Do you see what the death of Christ accomplished for sinners? It accomplished redemption. Redemption. The question is, do you know what redemption is? We use the term, do we know what it means? Because I'll have you know that when Paul uses the word redeem or ransom there, that is the language of the slave trade. That, that is slave market language. In other words, if you bought or sold slaves in the first century, that is the exact word that you would use. 
The term literally means, get this, the release of a slave by the payment of a ransom price. That's what the term means. So don't you see? We were the slaves. Make no mistake, slaves to sin, slaves to Satan. In other words, every single person ever born in history, Christ accepted, was born a slave held hostage to the power of sin. Period. I mean, let's not, let's not kid ourselves here by pretending that we had some sort of, you know, inherent power or ingenuity before Christ delivered us as if through our own human innovation we could break ourselves free from the power of sin. Let's not delude ourselves this morning. No, before Christ's intervention, we were always continually controlled by sin and on our own, it was impossible to break free from sin's control. That is reality. And yet, and yet, what is it that Paul says the death of Christ accomplished? What did he say? Redemption. Ransom. Freedom. Liberation. Emancipation. No longer puppets under the power and dominion of sin. Don't you see, if you are in Christ, you are no longer a slave. You are free. You see, Christ is not like Harry Houdini. You remember him? You probably don't. None of you were alive to see him. Um, but he was this magician in the early 1900s, and his bread and butter trick was to escape from the inescapable, right? Handcuffs, straitjackets, prisons, wrapped in chains, put in a box, dropped in the ocean, you name it, whatever, whatever it was, he had the ability somehow to break out of it. But you see, all it was was entertainment, there was always a trick. It, there, it, was, it was an illusion. It wasn't real. That is not the kind of savior that Christ is. He's not some cheap entertainer with a trick up his sleeve. He is a divine savior who alone has the power to emancipate ruined sinners from the slavery of sin. And you know, one of the things I love about the death of Christ is that, that there's no fine print. There, there's no exception clause. In other words, what I mean is, there's no such thing as, well, you are free. Well, except for porn. Christ can't free you from that. There's no such thing as, you are free. Well, except for lust. There's no cure for that. There's no, you are free. Except for substance abuse. That doesn't really apply here. Or, or, or name the issue that people just assume is outside of the saving power of Christ. I mean, think of the toughest issues that you stare in the face every single day of your lives. Don't you see there is hope for you? Why? Because Christ redeemed you, released you from slavery by the payment of a ransom price. Because look at what he says in verse 14. Christ gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness 
Not a few lawless deeds, not some lawless deeds, not many lawless deeds, not most lawless deeds. All lawlessness. Meaning what? Meaning there is not a sin of which the human heart is capable, of which the power of Christ is not able to overcome. This is incredibly hope-giving. If that doesn't cause you to leap for joy, I don't know what will. And yet at this point, I really have to ask the question, have you been redeemed? Have you been released from slavery by the power of a ransom price? What I'm asking is, do you actually belong to Jesus Christ? Or, or are you a still a slave held hostage in your sin? I would be a traitor to you if I did not at least, at least pose the question. Because what fools are they who for a drop of pleasure will drink a sea of wrath? You don't have to drink that wrath. You don't. You don't have to drink it at all because you can have what Christ purchased, including freedom from sin, transferred to your bankrupt spiritual bank account, and the only thing you have to give up to get it are the things that would have led to your destruction anyway. That's why I'm asking you right now, in 100% seriousness, to stop playing games with your eternity. To stop sitting on the fence of the universe, shrugging your shoulders like a, like a good agnostic. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe I will. I don't know. I kind of like this over here instead of Christ. No, I'm asking you right now to stop. And I'm asking you to relent and submit to Jesus Christ. Because I'll have you know, the grass is greener on the other side with Christ. All the joy that you seek in all of your pursuits can only ultimately be found in Jesus Christ. So today, today is the day for redemption. To yield yourself to Jesus Christ by faith. And if you have been redeemed, well then the question simply becomes, Does it not burn in your soul to make it known to the slaves who need it so badly? Does it not burn in your soul? I mean, how can one former slave being released from prison not look with pity upon other slaves still held fast in the dungeon of their sin? I mean, is not the hope of redemption compelling enough for you to share it with the poor sinners in your path? Do you not see that central to your identity as a Christ follower is to, is to bring about the faith of God's elect by making known the redemption found only in Christ? Because we literally have the most shareable and unembarrassing message in the universe. A risen redeemer, risen, who paid for sin, who conquered death, and who satisfies the soul That is a good message. That brings us finally to achievement number three. Achievement number three of the death of Christ, because look what else Paul says his death accomplished, verse 14. He says, Christ gave himself on our behalf, number one, to redeem us from all lawlessness, number two, and number three, to purify for himself his own people who are zealous for good works. You know, the thing, 
the thing that, that so much of American Christianity just, just doesn't get is that Christ did not die to forgive anyone who go on treasuring anything more than they treasure Christ. What I mean is, Jesus Christ will not settle for second place. Ever. He did not die so that you could merely add him to a life cluttered full of countless distractions. Christ did not die merely to improve your personal quality of life and then just have you live kind of for whatever tickles your fancy. No, Christ died. Jesus Christ died to make you zealots, fanatics, radicals, extremists. That's exactly what Paul says. He says that Christ died to purify for himself his own people. What does it mean by that? He means purify, not in the sense that you don't sin anymore. No, that word purify, he's using Old Testament Levitical language whereby something, or in this case, someone, belongs exclusively to God. In other words, the death of Christ consecrated you. It cattle branded you, it earmarked you, set you apart as the exclusive possession of Jesus Christ himself. Because notice Paul's language. Look what he says. Look at the text. It says, Christ with his death purified, get this, for himself, his own people. Do you see that? For himself. He did not save you for you. He saved you for himself. That's what Christ is doing in human history, saving a people for himself from every people group on the planet. And what that means is you belong to him. You exist for him. Your lives, our lives, are not our own to do with as we please. No, his fame his mission, his passions, his ambitions, those have now been transferred to us and they become ours. You see, to call yourself a Christian is so much more than to declare your religious preference. No, it is the declaration that you are the property and possession of another, namely Jesus Christ himself. As you see, to be redeemed automatically means that we are the possession of the one who redeemed us. And yet the question is, what does that look like exactly? What does that produce in our lives? What does this, how does this display itself in our lives? Great question. Look at the end of verse 14. He says, Christ gave himself on our behalf to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself his own people, here it is, who are zeloten kalon ergon, zealous for good works. It doesn't mean the exact same thing here, but that word zealous is the word used for radicalists who try to kick out Rome out of the country. A zealot passionate, consumed, obsessed, someone who's radical and recklessly abandoned, not for some political cause, but for what? Zealous for good works. And what is a good work, you ask? A good work is 
anything that puts Jesus Christ on display as a treasure. A good work is, is anything that, that will show Christ to be a Savior that changes people's lives. A good work is anything in service to other people to help them see Jesus Christ for the supremely valuable treasure that He is. The question for you here this morning is, for what are you most zealous? For what are you most passionate What is the thing in your life around which you prioritize everything else? Be honest with yourself. Really ask the question. You see, the funny thing about how God made us is that we can't hide what we truly love. We always make time for the things that matter most to us. And if it's not Christ and His global cause and good works that advance the Great Commission, well, then I ask, what is it? If it's not those things, then what is it? What is it? And make no mistake, I'm not trying to guilt you this morning. Far from it. I'm trying to inspire you to get you to see that life is too short, too precious, too painful to waste on worldly bubbles that burst. Heaven is too great. Hell is too horrible. Eternity is too long that we should putter around on the porch of eternity. And so let's be a zealous people, shall we? I mean, if we're going to do this Christian thing, let's go all the way and let's be zealous. Redeemed people zealous for good works, who live in the power of God's grace, who live every single moment on the edge of our seats in anticipation for the arrival of the glory of Jesus Christ. Because I'll have you know, if we live like that, we will be a healthy church. And the thing about healthy churches is that they change the world. And that is exactly the kind of church this church is going to be. Let's pray. (coughs) Oh Christ, we freely admit that the only thing we have going for us by ourselves on our own is that we are weak people. Oh Lord, we freely admit to you that we are just branches, that we don't have any of the components in ourselves to do what you call us to do. We we freely admit that. We... we, uh, Repeat your words, Christ. Your grace is sufficient for us, for power is perfected in weakness, Lord. And we struggle, we struggle every single day, Lord. I know, I know that in a few hours from now, I'm going to be at home and my theology is going to go right out the window and I'm going I'm to be irritated or selfish or say something stupid. And, and so, Lord, I and all of us, we join you in the unanimous chorus of saying, we really need you. So please, Lord, help us be a word-filled, word-drenched people. Help us to live in reality that we can be changed by the power of grace. That Christ, you could show up at any second. And that Christ, you have redeemed us by your blood. Thank you for this church. What a gift they are. 
pray that you would bless them and encourage them always and only in the name of Christ. Amen.